Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Back Bay Life Science Report, Back Bay Life Science Advisors' monthly audio podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing investment and development in digital medicine, health tech, digital therapeutics, uh, an area that has numerous categories and names associated with it. And I'm so delighted to be joined today by Michaela Odlander of Orexo Therapeutics and Ed Klipus of Sofanova Partners, um, respectively in Sweden and also America for Orexo and in France for Ed. So Ed and Michaela, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us indeed. It is indeed our pleasure. So we're, we're talking about what is the extremely exciting area of health tech with the two of you. And although I remember decades ago when health tech first started and physicians were upset by having to do 11 keystrokes to prescribe an aspirin, the world has changed dramatically since those ancient times. And obviously the pandemic accelerated things. But we're going to talk today about numerous challenges, target areas, adoption and investment hurdles, corporate development hurdles, et cetera. And I can't think of two better people to have this conversation with than you. I wanted to start with the two of you introducing yourselves and your roles and your organizations and your organization's mandate. Uh, and we'll go from there into some of the very specific challenges and opportunities ahead. So, Michaela, if we could please start with you. Sure. Happy to kick things off. Uh, I'm Director of Digital Therapeutics at Orexo, which means that I head up the dedicated business development team and international expansion of the DTX, uh, but also work quite a lot on strategy for our pharma pipeline as well. So got a, got a few hats on there. Um, now, Orexo is a Swedish mid-sized pharmaceutical company with our commercial headquarters in the US, in New Jersey. We're a company with a focus on mental illness and substance use disorder from both the pharmaceutical and digital perspective. And our digital portfolio is comprised of products for depression, alcohol misuse, and opioid use disorder. And the latter uh, really being where our company has its core focus on, on OED. Terrific. And I, and I can't help but mention, actually, this is being recorded on April 4th, and this is indeed Back Bay's 13th birthday. And our third project at Back Bay many years ago was with Orexo Therapeutics in a very different guise for your company and a very different guise for our company all these years Full later. Circle. So happy birthday to Back Bay and how nice to be with you on this. <laughs> and incidentally, no one has ever used the word fluffy on one of our audio podcasts before. So we're, we're breaking all kinds of precedents here. <laughs> Ed, welcome. Uh, tell, us, tell us again um, from your perspective about your your fund within Sofanova Partners and Sofanova Partners in general. Yeah, sure. And Miguel and I were joking before, you invited a Dutchman and a Swede on the show. So, you know, fluffy is the first word you said that is a, a groundbreaking one. Be careful what the next one could be. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a partner at Sofinova Partners. Sofinova is the, the, we like to think, the oldest life science venture firm in the world, uh, founded in 1972. Um, we have two and a half billion assets under management. And something exciting happened last week. We announced the launch of a new investment strategy where we will invest in digital medicine. And this is a strategy that my partner Simon and I are leading. Um, and we define digital medicine as the integration of advanced computational techniques uh, with medicine. And this can be anything from AI, machine learning, and um, data analytics, really with the purpose of providing personalized, efficient, and effective healthcare to improve the quality of care and, and also lower the cost profile of treatments. So that happened last week. Congratulations. We made three investments. Thanks. We made three investments to date. Um, we invested in Biocortex, a, a UK-based company, 
uh, we led the Series A in Kiro, a France-based company focused on laboratory data. And we led the Series A of DeepSea, a German-based uh, company uh, looking at radiology. So, yeah, we're pretty excited. We believe the digital medicine has the potential to really transform the way that, you know, healthcare is being delivered and, and that we transform patient lives. So we're excited to be at the forefront of this. And to our knowledge, this is the first time that an established player uh, like Sofinova is really dedicating itself to this, to this domain. I, I think that's wonderful. And I think very timely apropos of this discussion as well. So thank you both for those introductions. And I think you, you represent different ends of the spectrum in some way with regard to this particular area with different focus, um, with different needs and with different business agendas, and yet both an incredibly important part of the ecosystem. Um, Michaela, I want to start with you because I think there's often even misperception around the issue of digital therapeutics and digital medicine. There are companies that really look to have technology supports for the pure and um, traditional pharmaceutical support which they provide, but there are also companies that really look to expand into digital therapeutics, taking the broader meeting in terms of impact on care, fostering adoption, um, and then of course the impact on quality of care and even such things as reimbursement. Can you give us a little bit of a broader um, view of how you view digital medicine, either as an adjunct to some of the core issues that Orexo Therapeutics has to tackle in what is clearly a very challenging space, or alternatively into the way as a standalone area for Orexo to explore, it takes shape. And obviously, please touch on impact on care, fostering you know greater adoption, hurdles to reimbursement, hurdles to quality of care. Yeah, sure. I think that's a, a great question. And then a quite a vast area to dive into. And I think that there's quite a lot of confusion around it. So I think just a, a junction, a product that is adjunct to care essentially means that you use it together with the primary treatment. And then you have the standalone products that are, well, as the name alludes to, uh, supposed to, to provide the endpoint that it's dedicated for by just being on its own. It can also work in many cases as an adjunct but it needs to work on its own. So it really depends on what your company is looking for, what kind of problem you're trying to solve for, and specifically what kind of, what kind of problem you're trying to solve for your patients, so where you can generate value for the patient. I think that's ultimately where you always need to go. So that's where, where you look at how do you foster adoption, how can you have an impact on care that always ultimately boils down to the end user. So whether that is in some cases a healthcare professional, but in most cases it's the patient. Um, you really just need to be in tune with your patient group. You need to have interactions with them. You have to have your focus groups. You need to understand what their life looks like. And I think what loads of companies sometimes fail to do, but what could really benefit them is to really try to map out the patient journey and you will quickly realize that there are um, gaps both before, during and after treatment where you could really generate value for your patient. And if you can find those areas, then it, it's both beneficial for your company uh, and the patient. And whether that is meeting it through a standalone product or meeting it through an adjunct product that isn't really the important part, but it's it's really about the value for the patient and creating that 
um, holistic, patient-centric approach and, and, and realizing that it's not just a one, one pill fix all uh, kind of situation. And I think you also touched on reimbursement. Same logic goes for reimbursement, really um, understanding. If you want to try, try to understand early on with a product that you're not entirely sure on, you know, what kind of value this can bring, could this be reimbursable? It's really about, again, setting up those, um, those analyses, trying to get in front of, of payers. And, and often, especially in the US, you, you might want to do a double-blinded or blinded kind of um, third-party interview where, where you try to get some information on whether this could be reimbursable. Um, but you really need to always start from from those primary interviews. I think it's very diff- difficult to kind of read your way into these things. We're trying to listen to secondary sources to to kind of land on a, a solution or or kind of an answer for for you and your company. Yeah, you know, I want to interject because it's it's one of the things that um, many years ago I found frustrating about the organization of uh, healthcare companies, healthcare investment, and et cetera. And I will say. Um, this is from the perspective of a, a galaxy long ago and far away when I, you know, when I, when I was in a clinician scientist role and not in, in this business role that I've occupied for a couple of decades. It always just struck me as artificial that we had companies that isolated pharmaceutical from device and then increasingly healthcare technology because patient care was never delivered in a non-holistic setting. We, we needed therapeutic drugs that actually served as adjunct to interventional procedures. And yet companies are never organized that way. One of the really exciting things about digital therapeutics in a role like yours, Michaela, uh, and at yours as well, is that it is really a much more integrative function than companies traditionally have occupied. And I think, I think that's just incredibly positive for patient care and the patient journey. So, and with that as a segue, you obviously have a lot of options as an investor. There are just a list of few information management for clinicians, organizational behavioral changes, therapeutic and clinical decision support like Michaela, meaningful diagnostics, and I say meaningful because diagnostics that don't impact action um, probably are not all that worthwhile. But as you look at this space, tell us a little bit about your focus or whether you're agnostic and whether it's just really the value to the overall system that matters, but how you go about trying to parse what I'm sure are hundreds of opportunities that come across on a monthly basis to you. Yeah, I mean, we look at things very bottom up and and let me describe this. I think a couple of major forces at play here. So one of the major forces is that we actually are generating very well-structured data, in particularly in biology, at scale at the moment. And we now finally have the computational techniques to make sense of that data. Now, what that allows us to do, and this is nothing less of a sea change in the way that we practice science in general, but medicine in particular, it allows us to step away from a previously very reductionist approach in which we practice science where we take a very complex problem and we break that into little pieces, but then there's always that translational leap that is implied in that process that whatever you observe in isolation behaves the same in complexity. Now, that's been sort of like the, the ground state of medicine for a very long time, and it's gotten us uh, a, you know, a hell of a long way, but it's reaching a limit. And now finally we've been given the techniques by the generation of well-structured data and these computational techniques to sort of like accelerate beyond that artificial ceiling and actually regard complexity in its entirety. Complexity being, for example, human biology. So we now have finally within reach things like precision medication, precision medicine, or even understanding, for example, early diagnosis, early treatment, and therefore better quality of life. 
stepping away from milligrams per kilogram dosing, which is still something that's mind-boggling, even to me as a, as a pharmacologist. So that's, that's one major change. I think the other one is sort of like the market need. So this is the database computations, the possibilities we've been given. The market need is, you see these major forces that have been sort of like um, brewing for a while, and all of a sudden COVID blew the lid of this thing. The first one being the rise of spend uh, on healthcare as a portion of GDP, which has tripled in the US over 50 years and doubled in Europe. And then the second part is the changes to the demographic pyramid. So we see fewer people contributing to the system and more people drawing from the system. Now, COVID has added insult to injury by actually creating a major supply demand mismatch in the practitioners. So all of a sudden we see all these individuals requiring care, but not being able to access it. I mean, the NHS in its current state is the case in point of that. So we firmly believe that this is where the technology therefore finds its markets need. So what we do, is we like to think we are pretty clued in with our 51 years of experience in this domain as to where these supply and demand mismatches manifest themselves. And, and the strategy is very simple. We have a number of bottom-up theses where we believe that a supply demand mismatch will manifest itself to the detriment of patients. And we try and cater to, to those problems by investing in solutions that cater to that. I'll give you two key examples here. So the company we backed, Kiro, in France, what they're doing is the interpretation of laboratory data. If you uh, take a laboratory test now, like a blood test, you get an A4 piece of paper, you have a bunch of values, bunch of reference values, and only the ones that are outside of the range get marked with a little star. And so the doctor looks at that and says, hey, your XYZ biomarker is off. But the interplay between the different biomarkers or even the variation over time is completely disregarded. Case in point being your thyroid levels. If you test it in the morning, there's a 30% difference and if you test it in the afternoon. That's all disregarded in the current state of affairs. Kiro captures all that metadata. And what it allows them to do is not only get a better interpretation of the health state, but it also allows them to understand, for instance, an early onset of disease. And then if you get, you know, for example, a trigger that, hey, you might be at risk of chronic kidney disease, you do another blood test, it's either rejected or accepted the hypothesis, and instead of going on lifelong dialysis for having, sadly enough, not treated this effectively and early enough, you can get a treatment and all of a sudden you're still a productive member of society and a very happy individual. So that's one. That's an efficiency play that is really not that difficult to achieve, one would say, but is re really meaningful. Now, the second one is um, a company called DeepSea that we backed in Germany. And what DeepSea does, um, I've been looking at the space of, of AI-based um, radiology or AI-based pathology for a long time. And um, I'll probably um, you know, get told off for making this, this simple analogy here. But um, if it's not that difficult to train an algorithm, uh, because it's a function of just downloading a tensor algorithm and having a bunch of, of, of samples and letting then the, the, the training do, it, do its work, with the main difficulty being going through regulation, I'm over, of course, uh, hyperbolically um, simplifying this. But how come that these technologies are not pervasive in community care centers, in radiology chains in, in, in the countryside? So that was the question that we went out with. We spoke with, we spoke with about 15, 20 different uh, centers. And ultimately, we found that the main risk is going to market. Nobody wants to have 20 different agreements with 20 different vendors. And so these guys have taken that away. So this is an example of, of another solution that we've done. Yeah, that, that's great. And that's, that actually is a very good segue to the next question I want to ask the two of you. I do think you also bring up one other extremely interesting point. 
There's a lot in medicine and in the delivery of medicine that is really much more about trend management than it is actually about therapeutic intervention. We do, in the ICU is a prime example of that, where there's actually all, not all that much we can do to alter the course of disease other than support through infection, support through cardiac or pulmonary physiology deterioration, but identifying those trends, being able to have algorithms that really zero in on um, an early ID system, an early warning system, can deeply influence care, can deeply influence cost. Um, and I think everything you both have spoken about really um, invokes that very important part of medicine that sometimes gets lost in the rush to the killer app therapeutic that um, many companies are focused on. So, um, Michaela, I'd like to head back to you for a moment here and then, um, Ed, have you answer the same question from an investor perspective. Um, all of us see companies from around the globe with great engineering, great computer science, excellent management, but the translation from European and Nordic markets, let's say, to the U.S. market, which is um, a market, you know, going from simplicity, if there is such a thing in a healthcare system, or at least greater efficiencies of single payers, um, different types of care delivery, to the very disparate reimbursement system, to the disparate care delivery system in the United States, is really um, a major challenge in terms of replication and scale for a company. So, Michaela, Orexar, I know, straddles the United States and Sweden, two very different systems. As you look at companies in the digital space, where do you see the greatest challenge in going from the concept in the EU or the Nordics, let's say, to the United States and other complex markets? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it's a very relevant one. I think we're having a ton of really interesting companies popping up here, especially in the Nordics and in Nor Northern Europe in general, uh, in the digital health space, really wants to, to, to um, keep an eye on. And, and of course, many of those will always look for that um, the ultimate goal, which is, is the U.S. It is the biggest uh, healthcare market in, in, in the West. Um, so especially when it comes to digital products that are developed for one, one country at a time, right? So it might be easier to then expand also into Anglo-Saxon countries. And, and there, of course, the U.S. will, will always be the big goal. Things that, uh, that, that companies tend to underestimate are, well, one the complexity of the reimbursement system. Uh, you already mentioned it, but I think it's just worth bringing it up. Taking a clear comparison between Europe there, uh, you can look at, at Germany, for instance, where, where the second you get regulatory approval to get onto the market as a digital therapeutic, you're also reimbursed and you're nationally reimbursed, right? It means that you reach 90% of all Germans. So that's a huge amount of people. And we've really seen a hockey stick in, in sales for digital therapeutics or adoption in general. And so, so it's clear that there is a need for digital therapeutics. There is a, an adoption. There is an attractiveness that people find from these products, right? So, and, and, and seemingly the reimbursement is really the crux of the matter here. And that's sadly what you're seeing in, in the U.S. now, where since you don't have those national reimbursement systems, you go into the jungle, so to speak, having to figure out how to actually get paid for this. You can get get to the market with your fancy new train, but the railroad is not there yet, so you can actually not travel anywhere. 
it's it's kind of the, the same thing. You can't go anywhere. No one wants to pay for anything. It it has to be reimbursed. Um, but no one also wants to reimburse it because it's this new new thing that people can't really wrap their head around. Um, so I think that's a, a very big cha- challenge for, especially for young digital therapeutics companies. I think what we're starting to realize more and more is that this is really going to be a marathon and not a sprint. So it's really about who can hang in there. And for us as a pharma DTX company, we obviously have the benefit of having other revenue streams. For a pure play digital therapeutics company, it might not be that easy. And and so so I think that's that's the 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 big one. The second one that I think um companies will it's a bit of a shock going into the US is really the cost. Um so things are just more expensive. Uh the health the healthcare space in the US is, is business based, um, which is something that I think loads of uh, European companies might not be too familiar with. And I, so my advice to any young digital health company wanting to go to the US, try to do as much as possible in in Europe. You can do your branding, you can do all of that in Europe. You're, you're moving to a, a, another Western market is another thing. If you decide to go to Asia, decide to go to Africa, all of that stuff, but you're still moving within the Western hemisphere. Loads of things can be done. You get front-loaded a lot in Europe before you go to the U.S. and you can put that money into public affairs and really that kind of payer interaction where, where it's all going to have to go. Michaela, thanks so much for those comments. Um, you know, the other thing that I would note in the transition, and then I want to turn this to you in terms of perhaps a discussion of Michaela's comments that you should first test in the markets of Europe as a European company. Um, you know, the, the transition into the EMR at the United States in, in and of itself is massively challenging. The integration issues on the technology level and being able to, you know, penetrate delivery networks, actually penetrate their IRBs, make sure that you're set up, that you have advocates. It's reimbursement and it's also technology integration. And I think that's the other thing in terms of getting into the United States that can be so challenging. But maybe comment from a couple of perspectives, from an investment hypothesis, how critical is the U.S. and rest of the world markets when you're looking at more regional companies um, in your purview? And do you agree with Michaela that starting in Europe and really getting everything worked out and then transitioning is, um, is the way to go versus tackling the big problem you know, right off the bat? I love Miguel's uh, uh, referral to the uh, to the train tracks. Oh, I'm going to circle back that was... to that. Um, I, I think maybe maybe taking one step back, we we have we're fortunate enough to have a broader view. So we look at digital medicine in three different areas. We look at enabling technologies, which is everything that is just about the data collection, the data dissemination, and broadly put, anything that does not touch the patient. Then we look at analytics, which is all around longitudinal data points and making sure you diagnose earlier and you ultimately intervene more efficaciously and then follow up. And then the last area that we look at is treatment, which is digital therapies as a portion of that. So for us, it's part of the overarching strategy. Now, that being said, it is our firm belief there's three ways to make money in tech. It's either existing technology, new channel, new technology, existing channel, or new technology, new channel. Now, if you think of the existing technology, new channel, uh, I personally hypothesize that that is Um, where a lot of the generalist tech players excel. That's why you see telehealth being dominated by generalist tech investors. 
because you ultimately don't iterate on, on, on the care, just on the care delivery. The second category, new technology existing channel, largely put in my understanding is biotechnology. You can take deep clinical, deep technical risk, but ultimately you hand over the asset to a pharma partner who commercializes it. Even Moderna, even BioNTech have done this. And then you have the new technology, new channel. Now, I think we operated uh, in the DTX space at large under the hypothesis that DTX would behave in that, in that second category. Turns out the channels aren't there yet. And so we have to build those channels. So how we look at that is there's two ways sort of to invest in this and it's a tactical decision where to go first. Again, what I mentioned before, DeepSea is a company where we have the channel first, here is a company where we have the technology first. And so we take a tactical decision based on that. Um, a channel first company usually will be more geographical and sort of like emphasized around a certain geography because you're playing that part. A technology first company for us is very important that it's global. So we play fundamental biology. Because just as you take a pill on the West Coast, you take a pill on the East Coast, you take a pill in Sub-Saharan Africa, biologically speaking, it behaves the same way. And so if we do a new technology, we invest in something that bio biologically speaking behaves universally across the world and thereby it de-risks going to market in the US. So that's how we look at these things. It is not to say that there is a, sil you know, a single answer for going to market in the US. All of the things that you outline, Michaela, on, on the train track that you mentioned there, that's important to regard and we look at it every time. Over 50 years we've done this. We, we've taken technologies from Europe and we launched it in the US. So uh, it, it is something that we're familiar with. And of course, the US cannot be disregarded because it's the single biggest market for healthcare. Uh, but it is a tactical decision in our view how to play that transition and how to do it on a case-by-case -case basis. And, um, and I'll make the comment as well that I think we, we tend to think of the U.S. market as a monolithic staying in one space market. And it's interesting how the impact of digital therapeutics and digital technologies in general are changing the behavior in the American market accelerated from the pandemic. So in fact, it's a bit of an uncertainty principle and that you're aiming at something that is rapidly changing as you're aiming at it. And I think finding the intersection between those two changes is a critical part of investment, exiting um, and, and development. So with that, I think we're close to being out of time. Ed, let me ask you to, in one or two sentences, give your counsel to people approaching you for investment and Michaela then subsequently for you to do the same for those approaching Orexo for partnership and or other relationships. So Ed, we'll start with you on that bit of advice. Just send me an email. I'm generally a nice guy. Well, we, we can we can actually put a whole other podcast as to whether that's actually <laughs> true. Hey, come on. <laughs> uh, hey, it's my podcast. I have the right to give you a hard time. But yes, um, I think you, you've expressed that Sofanova is widely open to a whole bunch of good ideas, and it's certainly a great firm with regard to innovation and dissemination of, of new stuff. So thanks so much for that. And Michaela. Your, your counsel for those who need to approach Orexo. And obviously, we'll send you an email, too. Yeah, I was just going to say, send me an email. I'm a nice gal. It's not much more complicated than that. We are at Orexo. We're always very interested in, in, in new uh, perspectives, new ideas, and uh, ways of how we can expand our portfolio. So please just send us an email. Try to understand what's going on in the market. It's not the, the easiest year, I think, uh, for, on, on, uh, for anyone. It, not for DTX, not for the investment community in general. So, uh, so let's just keep that in mind and then uh, we'll take it from there.
And, and I will add to that on this 13th birthday of Back Bay that our mantra since day one has been um, control the debate, meaning for companies that are coming in for investment, companies that are looking for partnership, companies that are looking to acquire, that if you're not in full possession of the facts around your offering, you're at a disadvantage. And, and certainly our raison d'etre has always been to make sure that we've explored all the different aspects of entering a market or expanding a market, et cetera. So with that, I'd like to thank you both so much for this animated and fun talk. It's always great to speak to the two of you, Michaela and Ed, respectively, at Arexel and Sofanova. What a, what a delight. And thanks for your time and thanks for the wise counsel. And I know that I will be among many that are always emailing you in the future just because it's so much fun to be together. But with that, we'll end the Back Bay Life Science Report. And again, thanks both to both of you for such a great contribution. Thank you. Thank you, guys.